Written on the pages of the great book of nature lies a truth so profound that it has beckoned men and women throughout the ages to seek its wisdom. We will continue this quest and study many stories of humanity as we search for this light. On this journey, we will examine philosophy, religion, and science to uncover the hidden mysteries behind myth and legend using the symbols of universal Freemasonry. Welcome to Legends of the Craft. Welcome back to Legends of the Craft, and we are continuing from our last episode, which was the mystery of time, how time was perceived in the ancient mysteries, how it's perceived in Freemasonry. And this will be a four-part series. Uh, Today, we'll be discussing the root races, and in the following two episodes... Uh, the Orphic Theogony, and then the Hindu Yugas. Um, and so we'll be, we'll be in these last three episodes showing how different cultures in antiquity perceive the cyclic history, the cyclic movement of time, the cyclic um, life that we have to live uh, through reincarnation or through different you know, types of reoccurrence. Uh, but today is root races, and root races... Um, is a theory developed by Madame Blavatsky, uh, the founder of the Theosophical Society. And it, it's essentially, in a mythological way, is very similar, similar to the Orphic Theogony, it, you know, to Zeus and all these different gods and how they descended and how they interact with, with mankind and created mankind. And very similar to the Hindu Yugas. Um, the difference is that Madame Blavatsky incorporated sort of a scientific element. So she paralleled the discoveries of Charles Darwin with ancient mythology and created sort of a new uh, half mythological, half scientific theory. Now, if you've heard of the idea of root races before, it's probably from some kind of YouTube conspiracy video or uh, blog post about how this is like secret Nazi philosophy. Uh, that they were trying to take over the world because they believed that they were the, you know, the true torchbearers of the Aryan race. And, you know, I mean, it's true that some aspects of theosophical philosophy made their way into what some members of the Nazi party believe. But what we are talking about today has nothing to do with, uh, with that philosophy that arose 50 years after uh, Blavatsky's original idea, which is what we're going to be talking about today. I mean, the Nazis really kind of cherry-picked uh, bits and pieces that s- sounded good and made them look good, um, but it really leaves out quite a bit of the theory of what root races are. And, you know, that word has certain connotations today. We're discussing it uh, in an era 150 years ago where our conceptions uh, and, and our connotations of the word race really don't apply to what these people were talking about uh, prior to the advent of the, you know, of the 20th century. This is a completely different uh, idea than what we might be thinking of when we hear the term races today. So the root races, um, they're divided in, into seven, of which we are, uh, humanity today is part of the fifth root race. So four have already passed, we're in the fifth, and there's two to come. And we're talking about over 150 million years of development so far. So following sort of um, Darwinistic theory about, you know, the length of time that it takes for an organism to evolve, um, this is in, in Madame Blavatsky's root race theory. 
And again, she didn't just make this up from scratch. It's sort of a, a modern extrapolation of modern and ancient thought combined into something that's more sensible for the mind, for the modern mind. And these root races, um, you have to see them at like different phases of human development. And when we go back to the first root race, um, we're looking at a non-materialistic humanity. Like there's really no physical form to this humanity. And in the fifth root race, you have the most material form of the human race. And it's called the U-curve theory. So from the first to the fifth race, humanity is devolving. And what, what that means is we're devolving from a spiritual state into a physical state. So what we in the, you know, in, in Western terms, what we call the fall in the Bible, um, it's, this, it's the same idea. So humanity is falling from a spiritual state down to a physical state. But at, when you're most engrossed in matter, you're furthest away from the spirit. So that's why right now in the fifth root race, which we are uh, essentially the Aryan race. And when we say Aryan, we're not talking about Germans with blonde hair and blue eyes and six foot five ready to, you know, uh, commit another Holocaust. That's not the Aryan race. The Aryan race uh, started 18 million years ago, according to this theory, uh, somewhere in the middle of Asia. And they had conquered uh, most of the continent and what we call Proto-Indo-European language, or Pi, um, is theorized to come from this original, you know, this, this original group of people in Asia that spread their culture uh, throughout Europe and, and Asia. And those are what we call Aryans. So they probably look more like, um, like people from Nepal. They probably look more like, like what we, you know, when you go to visit India today, those, the people that live there. It, they're more similar to that. They're certainly not blue-eyed, blonde-haired people. But Hitler really liked this theory, and he's like, oh yeah, the Aryans are actually Germans, and we're going to retake over the world and make everybody in our image. But that has nothing to do with what Blavatsky was speaking about. No, and, and for those uh, listeners who are kind of maybe you know, getting into the podcast with this episode uh, and haven't heard Brother Matias and I are big fans of theosophy. And uh, so we've discussed this a lot on previous episodes. But the basic idea here um, behind the root races is that, you know, I, I like to think of it in terms of like, you know, it's analogous to uh, echolocation. So essentially the idea here is that God has sent forth the word, right? Sent forth a, a sound wave of, of life and creation out into the universe. And that there are two phases to this. One is is the projection of life into matter, which is kind of like a you know like a bat sends a sound wave out, and then there's the part where the sound wave bounces back, and God or, or the you know the cosmic bat in this case gets to hear what has been created. We, as part of the Aryan race, the fifth root race, we've passed the midpoint and we're going back. That's why all of our religious traditions are, are talking about binding back to God, about you know transcending the earth and moving back to the source of the spirit, is because essentially we've passed the midway point of the universe's evolution. So when you're talking about the original root races of humanity, they're, they're amorphous and vague because they don't have any physical form because they haven't made it that far into matter yet. But us, as creatures of matter, we're on the upward swing of this trajectory. We've already passed through over hundreds of millions of years, all of our incarnations in the downward trend. We're now moving in the upward trend back to where we came from. So in this general scheme of evolution, um, there are several phases. There's the um, sort of the 
elemental evolution, then the mineral evolution, then the vegetable evolution, then the animal evolution, and we are currently in the human evolution. So in the original phase, we were more like particles, right? Like amoebas. And we'll get into that a little further. And then, then we entered sort of a mineral phase of consciousness, um, something resembling a rock, right? And, you know, and people might think that's silly, like, oh, we were a rock once. Well, but yeah, we, we were rocks. Like we had rock consciousness. In order to experience the universe, you have to experience everything. So the idea of this, this evolution is that, well, yeah, at one point I was a rock. At one point I was a vegetable. At one point I will be, you know, I'm a human. And in the future, I'm going to go to even higher states of understanding, to consciousness. So, you know, it's not silly to think that at one point my consciousness was so dumbed down and so basic that it was equivalent to a rock. So I think th there's two things about the theosophical view on evolution that are different from what we would, um, than, than how we understand like Darwinistic evolution in the modern time. The first is that the theosophists are dealing, are dealing with more than just human evolution. So, so Darwin's kind of like ideas about, about speciation, right, are, are dealing with, um, kind of the material world as we see it. But the theosophists believe that like the purpose of the universe is the creation and evolution of life forms. And that like, while we might be at the apex now as human beings, that physical forms come and go to manifest different kinds of consciousness in the universe. The other thing that's different is that they're reckoning with uh, spans of time, millions of years longer than what we conceive of now. I think like, and I'm not very good on my evolutionary biology, but as far as I understand it, like modern science believes that human evolution stretches back like, what, 200,000 years that human beings as we would recognize them have been around. Theosophists go back millions of years. They say that not only like human beings, but like civilizations were on the earth millions of years ago. Yeah, so if, if you know, going into Charles Darwin, um, Blavatsky had a lot of negative things to say about him. And the reason is, is that she viewed the, the origin of species that he wrote, the, the theory of evolution, Darwinism, as not entirely wrong, but mostly wrong um, because it was too narrow. It only focused on the physical evolution, the, the material evolution of, of a body, you know, of an organism, of an entity. And that's all that Darwin was looking at. Uh, but of course, it's science, right? That's all they can look at is the material. So Blavatsky's theory basically has three levels of, of evolution. There's the physical, which Darwinism does do a very good job of looking at that. But then there's the intellect or the mind, and then there's spiritual evolution, which is the highest. And in Blavatsky's view, it was spiritual evolution that dictated the other two. The, the mental evolution or the evolution of the mind and the physical evolution. But there are three different levels here that are evolving. And that the physical body is but a container or a vessel for the other two. And therefore, its adaptation is not because necessarily just because of a volcano erupted uh, or because the seasons change or there was a drought or whatever would make um, you know, the physical form adapt. It's the fact that as the mind and the spirit of humanity expanded, so must the vehicle, the body expand in order to be able to express these other two levels of evolution. And 
in that way, I think she, it's, it's kind of a, a very beautiful metaphysical view of evolution, not necessarily negating Darwinism, but saying, yeah, it's great, but it's incomplete. There's, there's other things we can be looking at, and unfortunately, science will not allow us to look at it. Therefore, the secret doctrine, the, excuse me, the secret doctrine that she wrote, literally, it's a synthesis of philosophy, religion, and science. That's what she called it. So she thought by looking at religion and philosophy, it could help explain why physical evolution happens, that, that the mechanism just isn't arbitrary and random. It's not just, you know, the survival of the fittest. Again, it's not a volcano or a drought or whatever. It's the fact that as we evolve to higher levels of consciousness, the physical must adapt to, to house that. Well, and to this idea that like that random mutation and chance is what generates uh, forms of consciousness in the world would have been something kind of very foreign to especially Blavatsky and the early Theosophists because, you know, as far as I understand it, their whole position here was, and, and this actually leads into a question for you, Brother Matthias, but like their whole idea was that this uh, process is being conducted as part of a discernible will in evolution, that, that God as a consciousness has directed this to happen and, and that we are you know, with free will and chance as a part of this, we are kind of fulfilling uh, a plan or a, a cosmic form that has to be played out before the universe can come to an end. And so my question for you is like, where does Blavatsky say that she gets this information? Because at some point, like if you go back far enough, like it's not like she's not saying necessarily that this is reasoned out by deduction but that like this comes from ancient traditions that were handed down from us by those who know more than us so there's kind of three parts to this uh she claims to have entered tibet i think sometime in 1868 and she found uh what she calls the trans um, himalayan brotherhood uh it's a school of adepts in in tibet um practicing some form of tibetan buddhism and that within their care uh, there's a document called the, uh, the Book of uh, Zion, um, which was written in an ancient language called Senzar. So she, she wrote down the stanzas, brought them back to the West, and the secret doctrine is essentially a commentary on these stanzas that, that were translated by these Tibetan Buddhists, these adepts up in Tibet for her, and that um, it's an ancient history of the world which kind of parallels the Vedas, the Bible, uh, and all the ancient traditions of the world. But the commentary is hers, and she admits it. She's like, this is my commentary. And so what she's doing is she's using modern language. She's using scientific uh, vocabulary and modern conceptions of reality in order to um, make the modern reader accessible to these ancient ideas. Because... Uh, if you ever read the stanzas, they're, they're beautiful, but they're very poetic. So she made something that was more concrete. So, the, so this information is the way she's depicting it. But she also had traveled the world for 40 years. Uh, you know, Egypt, Russia, the Ottoman Empire, India, Central America, North America, Japan. She was all over the world. And so having collected all this information about um, the various traditions of the world, she synthesized all that. And it's very syncretic how she brought all these different religions and philosophies together in this sort of, um, this grand theory of how the world came to be. It's partly what she's obtained, but again, she's putting her own you know, fingerprint on it by modernizing it and then contrasting it to scientific ideas. 
And so to kind of, you know, explain, like, why is, why is this important to masonry? It's in our branch of masonry, it, it's our belief that masonry is a continuation of a tradition that observes, discerns, and cooperates with this will and evolution. The, the, the idea is that basically, like, human beings can come into contact with and understand to a certain degree this plan for evolution and cooperate with it. That essentially that uh, Masonic ritual and, and initiation basically puts people into this current or this river mm -hmm. of, of evolution and speeds the entire process along. You know, Annie Besant or Annie Besant, however you like to say her name, but she, she's the one that created our form of masonry. We can call it theosophical masonry, not because it's a... Uh, an appendage of the Theosophical Society, but because um, Theosophy in its kind of core way, meaning, you know, the 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 search for God wisdom, because it's Theo, you know, and... and Sophia. Sophia, and it's, it's God wisdom, right? It's God knowledge, right? And um, Theosophical Masonry, which is what we're protect, uh, practitioners of, you know, utilizing the Dharma ritual that was developed by Bassant in 1902, 1903, around there, um, focuses on the idea that there's um, a current race, but there's going to be a new race, right? A six-root race. And that masonry was going to be the school by which to train and develop the builders of this new civilization, of this new race. Again, this all sounds a little foreign in the 21st century, but at this time, everyone is talking about race mm -hmm. and the idea that we need to perfect our race, that, you know, elements of motherhood have to be perfected. The idea is, you know, the, the way we, what we eat and what we do and how we think. We're developing a new race. And masonry believes the same thing. And this is not just some sort of idea infused by the theosophists into masonry, particularly co-masonry, but if you read Albert Pike, if you read Albert Mackey, if you read... Uh, all these great Masonic writers of the 19th century, they're all talking about how masonry is going to build a new civilization, okay? And that's why in this episode, we're talking about root races, but, you know, we could be talking about different you know, vernacular depending on the different traditions, but it's all the same. It's the idea that there have been different periods in human history, and we are entering another one. I mean, in Christianity, this is called uh, dispensationalism, right? This idea that humanity goes through different dispensations, and we're arriving towards the end of that, which is going to be the end of a cycle. Again, going back to the mystery of time, this is, um, this is a cycle, right? And so in, in Blavatsky's root race theory, there are seven root races. But when you get to the end of it, you begin again. But we're going to begin again on another planet. Now, for a lot of Christians, like let's say Mormons, you know, they believe that this whole, you know, you're actually going to become a god and get your own planet, right? But the cycle begins again. So this, this is this is everywhere. We're just talking about a particular version of it, which, in my opinion, is a very simplistic and direct way to talk about it. Well, and and the other thing to remember too is that like at the time that this idea is being developed, so. Uh, you know, I, I think you were you know, generous in the way that Blavatsky uh, thought about Darwin. I, this idea stands in pretty, pretty vehement opposition to the kind of like materialistic view of evolution. And so 
there was a there was kind of like a battle for control over the over how this new race or this new civilization would be shaped. And I think what you see in the 20th century is that ideas of materialistic eugenics kind of win out, and that's what everybody becomes infatuated with un, until the <clears throat> the catastrophe of the Second World War. But like. Darwin's ideas through his cousin Francis Galton lead directly into eugenics. And so like the 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 kind of like the the trend or the um God, what is the word that I'm looking for the uh the thing at the time was essentially like scientific materialism the victorian like hype was around scientific materialism and they they took darwin's ideas of evolution and they they applied that into what we would now call social darwinism which led directly into the you know pseudoscience of eugenics and so basically the theosophists saw that this idea was going down a very materialistic path right that that it would lead to this kind of like obsession with matter they believed that as human beings at this particular point in our evolution, it was our it was our job to move away from involvement in matter. They wanted us to evolve out of our connections to the material world. Yeah, because remember we're in that U curve theory, exactly. right? So we're at the bottom of the U. And, going up. Yeah, we're and maybe we quite haven't hit the bottom. Maybe we have, but it's right now. So we're, we to get out of the predicaments that humanity are in, we must leave matter, right? And move towards the spirit. So here's where we get into some really kooky the- theosophical ideas that I personally, I, I love these ideas. So they, they basically thought that there was a force in the world that they called the Black Lodge, that there was this force that was trying to drag humanity down further into matter, that our ultimate destiny, our mission, so to speak, is to, is to return out of matter back to spirit, but that there's this force on earth that derives its power from subjecting humanity into more and more materialistic uh, iterations and incarnations. So they saw the the kind of like Galtonite uh, eugenicist as trying to drag humanity back down into matter, whereas their idea was to elevate them out of out of this material involvement into a more spiritual conception of evolution. I have no doubt that if Blavatsky or her followers had been around during the Second World War, that they would have viewed the Nazis as agents of the Black Lodge. Or they use the term the Dugpas, which is a Tibetan Buddhist term. Um, there's no doubt because the Nazis destroyed religion. Uh, they kept some of that occultism for themselves, but they were essentially, you know, masonry was stamped out of Germany and the German Empire, you know, Rosicrucianism, all occultism was destroyed, right? It was extinguished from the empire. Why? Because they are materialists. So there's no doubt that Blavatsky would have let him say, like, these people are agents of material involution. And the only way out of our predicament is to move away from matter and its involvement. And 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 she was um, she was certainly against capitalism, industrialization, all these things that she viewed as just pulling us, you know, back into the ground. Remember, we were talking about telluric forces mm-hmm. in our last episode. You know, materialism is a telluric force, and therefore Nazism, and really, like any totalitarian regimes, they usually they they end up destroying religion around them. Why? Because they're materialistic. They don't believe in the human soul. They don't believe in God. They're atheists. Mm-hmm. Well, and that was the, that was kind of the, that was the tide of the time. So Blavatsky lived through the era of the destruction of the kind of traditional monarchies of Europe. And and I know it's become fashionable in, in our time to kind of look back at that era as, um, 
as an age of these kind of degenerate aristocrats that were just stepping on the faces of these poor downtrodden peasants who, you know, never got given a chance in life and, and that these people were just having these kind of like orgiastic displays of wealth and opulence at the expense of everybody else around them. That really, like, if you if you really, like, delve deeply into history, that really wasn't what was happening. I mean, sure, there, there are cases and, and exceptions of, to anything throughout mm-hmm. history. But for the most part, the the monarchies of Europe were a stabilizing and 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 this might get me in trouble, spiritualizing force. The like we we especially in America, we hate the idea of the divine right of kings, right? We think that that's just this kind of like made up construct by which people exercise material authority. But if you actually look at like particularly the, the struggles between the papacy and the Holy Roman Empire, the degree to which uh, spirituality dictated material power in Europe during the time of the monarchies was incredible. Like people actually believed in their spiritual obligations when they were in positions of power. Now that begins to degrade at the end of the 18th century, but and then in the 19th century, the period that Blavatsky uh, is existing in is this kind of triumph of materialistic atheism really starting with the French Revolution over these kind of like traditional uh, spiritually oriented societies. And so she's living at a time when all of the stabilizing forces of the old world are being destroyed and chaos is entering the world because of it. And she views materialism winning out at the mm-hmm. end of the day. So she viewed herself as uh, an agent of spiritual... Um, renewal. Renewal, restoration mm-hmm. of the ancient ways and all her books and all her work in the Theosophical Society um, is to move the world back to spiritual understanding. But again, she, she views this as part of the U-curve, right? Again, so humanity were, ba- didn't have a physical body to begin with, but had, was basically just a soul. It was, it was a pure spiritual and mental being. And then over time, over hundreds of millions of years, has descended down to the lowest to our point. Um, and I said we're still going down. I don't. I don't think we've reached rock bottom. And I think we're close because when you look at atheism today as a major factor, you see that um, churches and religion are, are are essentially disappearing from the face of the earth uh, at a rapid rate. And we see the ideas of transhumanism, of the ideas of um, you know adding sort of like machine parts to us, having you know machine eyes and machine limbs. Um, and this transhumanism that will eventually, you know, we say that we can like upload our consciousness into a computer, you know, Neuralink that Elon Musk has developed. Like all of these ideas that we are starting to come into right now are so ultra materialistic that to me, it signals we just, we're about to hit the bottom yeah, because we're, we're about to be there. The, yeah. the spirituality will be a distant fact of history. And, you know, now, and this gets into some kind of more esoteric speculation, but like we were talking about in the last episode, um, this will be the work of the mysteries in the age to come is to basically to preserve this idea for when hu- when humanity begins to rise again on that U-curve. We need to have the knowledge of the time that came before ready at hand in order to work with and build into the future. But like you said, we're descending into a period of darkness. That light is going to be uh, snuffed out for a while. So th- there are seven root races, and um, the first one's called the 
the polar or polarian race. The second is the Hyperborean. The third is the Lemurian. The fourth is the Atlanteans, or the you know the story of the of the city of Atlantis, the island of Atlantis. The fifth is the Aryan, and the sixth and seventh race don't have any names because they haven't happened yet. Um, but to kind of put a backdrop to this, uh, you know, kind of summarizing what we've talked about is that all of this is based on an idea called emanationism and um, which you find in almost every religion which is the idea that god starts as sort of a point you could even say it's like a singularity and um, from that singularity comes the emanation of god they it gets it flows forth from a point outward until it reaches an end, and then it comes back to the center, right? So it's kind of like a breath, right? You know, so you you breathe out, and then you breathe in. And the Hindus and the Buddhists depict the universe as the breath of God, right? The, the breath of, of, of um, uh, Brahma. And so if you breathe out and you breathe in, you breathe out and you breathe in, this is the entire cycle of the universe. But one breath is that U-curve hitting the bottom, right? And then inhaling is the uh, the sixth and seventh root race. It's everything coming back to God. So God, uh, Blavatsky devised God as the monad, okay? And like the monad is a term used by Pythagoras. It's a term used by uh, uh, Leibniz. Um, and it means like, it's one thing, right? It's a monad. It's, it's like, it's considered kind of like a particle. A single point. And so God was but this single point, but then in this exhale, this emanation took place, and then the monad split into many monads, in which each of us as human beings, every animal, every plant, has a piece of the monad. So this monad is fractured, and every point in the universe is trying to experience and that experience, when all put back together at the end of the seventh root race, will be uh, the total expression of the monad. In modern scientific theory, there's this idea with uh, electrons that there might be only one electron in the universe. But that electron, because it's not bound by space and time, manifests in an infinite number of, of configurations so that... <clears throat> All the electrons that we that we can conceive of in, in at any place in the universe is really this one electron experiencing self, but at that moment in that place, it's it's you know it's a car, it's it's a rock, it's a planet, um, it's in this state or another state, and so it's very interesting. This is a very modern idea, but like if you compare it to Blavatsky's ideas here, it's 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 different language. It's, this you know, Blavatsky's not using math and science, right? Um, but she's conceiving the same thing. This one monad has split and splintered in a million billion different ways. It must experience all that can be experienced, and then only then can it come back into itself. You know, this reminds me uh, of a of a quote of uh, Aleister Crowley. As much as I, you know, don't have much time for his personal philosophies, he did have a, a, a very uh, you know thought provoking idea that I think once he said that. Uh, scientists are constantly discovering some tidbit of the ancient wisdom and congratulating themselves with much to do when they, you know, when they find these little pieces of things that have been known forever by the ancient mysteries. And I, and I think this was Blavatsky's argument in confronting Darwinism and, and the, materi- the prevailing materialism of the age, that these things are part of a constant tradition. 
right? And 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 truly, I think her work was to try to was to try to bridge this gap and 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 heal this self inflicted wound that we we have you know kind of taken upon ourselves of this divide between spirituality and science. Like theosophy was con- was conceived as a spiritual science. It was supposed to be the reblending of these two opposites, but like. You know, we we have become. It's it's a symptom of this involvement in matter that we've become infatuated with our with our most modern discoveries without like contextualizing them in the in the proper like broader aspect of history that these are things that have always been known. When we are just remembering, like these aren't discoveries that we're making. And so this gets into another idea that between you know the the problem with discussing original theosophical ideas is that we are our our conceptions of them are somewhat polluted by the the new age way in which they have been interpreted in the latter half of the 20th century so like there's this kind of idea now that like all of this stuff is like nice and soft and that like everybody's going to be okay and make it and like everything's going to be fine in the end you don't really have to do anything blavatsky's transitions between uh, between these races were always accompanied by cataclysm, like absolute catastrophe between and that sets humanity back in its evolution. And there's another aspect of that that I'll get into in a second that, that kind of shows why we're, we're held back in, the, in between these things. But like to her, these are convulsions of natural forces. It's not like everybody just wakes up one day and is like, well, I'm not a Polarian anymore. I'm a Hyperborean. And like I've evolved in my consciousness, the people that like the human beings that are incarnated at the time, like they have to live and they have to die and, and, the, and the world has to be cleansed by disaster and reborn. These are cosmic movements. It's not like, you know, we're all just one day going to wake up and it's going to be the sixth root race. And we're all going to be happy. No, there's, there's a lot of calamity and catastrophe and, and learning that, that goes along with this. Now, for her, because of reincarnation, this isn't so much of a big deal because we all have to go through all these stages. Just living and dying is what humans do. Mm-hmm. But the the idea that is also too like at the end of these races so i'm i'm thinking of the atlanteans in specific that the the black lodge and the white lodge the good and the evil forces that incarnate on earth are kind of locked in this struggle that repeats eternally and that their struggle brings about the catastrophe at the end of the age or of the race and brings the world anew into into this new revelation but that the souls from each side of this battle are reincarnated in the next race and they continue their struggle as they move upwards. And, and we can see this parallel to what you're talking about in, in different religions. We'll take Judeo-Christianism, uh, for example. So when we look at the Bible, emanationism um, is right there at the beginning in the book of Genesis, right? You know, the seven days of creation. Mm-hmm. It, it's literally the emanation of God coming out and creating the planet, right? Well, creating light and darkness, the sun, the moon, the planet. Then it creates the vegetable and the animal Mm -hmm. and eventually man and then splits man into man and woman. Like that whole story of Genesis is emanationism. Well, and then what happens at the end of the, you know, the revelation of the New Testament, we have the apocryphal apocalypse where, you know, seven seals of man have to be opened before the, you know, the final ending of the world can come about. It's like, it's that same structure that's outlined in Genesis with the seven days of creation is mirrored in the unlocking of the seven seals, which which are these seven root races that man has to go through. Yeah. So like in, in the Bible, uh, in the book of Revelation, 
the first four seals that you're talking about um, are the four, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? Um, and then at the fifth, um, I think it's called, you know, the, the word or wrath of God. You know, that's the, the cries of the martyrs will come forth. And that's because that's, we're at the very bottom. And then as, you know, uh, the sixth and seventh will bring the full judgment uh, to head and the cycle will be complete, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's right here in the Bible, right? So, and, and even looking at the Bible, even a little more detailed, uh, Adam and Eve leaving Eden is the end of the third root race and the beginning of the fourth. So that's the end of the Lemurians and the, the, the beginning of the Atlanteans. And I don't want to get, we're going to go through each of these races specifically, but just so those of you listening understand, like that correlates to that point. And then the story of Noah and the flood is the fall of Atlantis, right? You know, there's this big flood covers the earth. Well, that's the Atlanteans be, being destroyed. So like these are stories now uh, from the Bible overlapping Greek stories, uh, but they mark these sort of moments in history where we're transitioning from one race to the other. But like you said, it's not like on this you know specific year, this race ended and another began. There's an overlap of millions of years, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Well, and the other thing too, and and at some point we should go you know one one to uh, through seven here and, and describe this. But like, there's this other idea that there are some souls from previous races on earth at the same time as other root races. So like there during these periods of transition, there's intermingling. Like the, the world is never just one thing. There are there are just like in uh you know in the in the idea that that we have talked about in other episodes, this idea that there are different grades of spiritual evolution. I think when we talked about the adepts when we were talking about uh lead beater a couple episodes ago, we got into this idea that, you know, just because there is evolution, it doesn't mean that everyone's at the same point. And this is this is another idea that uh, Blavatsky and the Theosophist differed from Darwin on, is that like not everybody's the same at every exact moment. There are differing levels of evolution, and that everybody's moving in the same direction. But that in the times of transition, which we're you know we're we're still in between the Atlanteans and the Aryans, that there 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 is a mix on the Earth at any given time. And on top of that, we, we need to realize that, like, you know, Blavatsky's still a human being, and she's still a byproduct of her time. So in some of her writings, you know, referencing what you just talked about, Brother Axel, like, you know, she, she refers to certain people, like, usually, like, Native American tribes or, you know, certain tribes, like, in Oceania as, as being, like, Lemurian holdouts, right? That, and she was basically equating the inferiority of their culture uh, in comparison, quote, you know, between quotes to Western civilization and saying that these are basically, you know, leftovers from a previous age and that they're, that they're more savage in nature, right? Um, you know, those are the parts I think we have to sort of discard because in any given time when you're reading any sort of theory, um, these sort of biases appear in people's writings because, and, you know, when people in a hundred years look at what we're talking about and writing about today, um, particularly ourselves or everybody on the planet, they're going to look at us as like we're, we're idiots. Mm-hmm. We're, we're just talking about nonsense, right? Because they will be at a different level of consciousness. And then when they look back, they, they, they won't even be able to fathom why we believe what we do, right? No, and, and this is true of like any information that we put out now is cursed to fall under the scorn of our, you know, of our future descendants, just as we look back at our ancients now with this kind of like, derisiveness but the point of of doing all of this is to try to understand that 
they were human beings just like us that had thoughts and that they, they believed the things they believed for reasons, not just because they were mean or stupid. The other interesting idea of these of the root race theory is the idea of the development of senses. So uh, Blavatsky, um, following suit with science, which I don't know if this was the case in the 19th century, but definitely has been part of the research of the 20th century, which is that at different periods of, of evolutionary history, new senses were developed. You know, um, you know, originally I believe it was touch, and then it was taste. Um, then it was um, um, sight, then hearing, and then smelling, I think, was last. I, I might not be 100% with that, but like that, all these senses that we have as human beings, like it required literally hundreds of, of, of millions of years of evolutionary development in, in, in animal and plant species in order to get us to there. And, and then there's a, there's a guy called... Um, Oh God! What's his name? Ernest uh, Haeckel, uh, who's a German embryologist, and he comes up with this really interesting theory that if you look at the embryo and its development within the womb mm, and the mother, yeah. that like it goes through different phases where it shows our evolutionary history. And at one point, it's it's a mammal, and then it's uh, amphibious in nature, and, and so forth and so forth. And that that's why certain human beings today sometimes uh, are born with like a tail still, mm-hmm. or or webbed fingers. Um, or webbed fingers because yeah. it's left over from when we were essentially fish. So Blavatsky took this idea of, of embryology and showed that through the development of the root races, we have the development of different senses, which means there is a sixth and seventh sense that still has not been developed, latent. And and she believed that these sixth and seventh senses were the... The, the sixth sense was uh, essentially um, telepathy and that the seventh was a perfect clairvoyancy mm-hmm. because once we can feel and think um, we can feel and read the minds of other people and then eventually we can have a clear um, spiritual sight. knowledge yeah. of or sight of everything then we will have perfected ourselves because we can no longer fight and have war and have all these problems if we develop these last two senses which makes sense if you think about it like it, that that would be the seventh sense because at the end of a process, you can see everything that has come before. Like you're standing at the end, so you know everything that has come before. Like you would, you would have perfect sight at that point because you've reached the top of the mountain. You see everything below you. Um, so for about 41 minutes now, brother Matins, we've been promising our listeners to go through <laughs> sequentially the root races. Why don't you tell us about the Polarians and what shape and and kind of stage of consciousness this was attempting to express? So the, the first root race, by the way, they can be called epochs as well. Um, epochs, excuse me. So this is the first epoch of the first root race. Um, and, th- you know, when we say they're the Polarians or the, the polar people, that's not what they call themselves because this first root race didn't have a body like ours. They were, they were essentially like single-cell um, amoebas floating in the ocean so at that point the planet was just one big ocean and there was these cells just floating around but they were cells like the the size of a room um and they were massive and they just kind of float around but they didn't they didn't have the five senses they didn't they only had touch they could touch each other um they were they were basically beings of pure spirit right Mm -hmm. and there was no war, conflict, or division. They didn't even realize that they had been separated from the whole. Now, where did they come from? Well, 
the the way the um, Bavatsky describes it from the stanzas of Zan from you know this book she supposedly or allegedly found in Tibet is that there was the lords of the moon or the lo- the lunar lords and the lords of the flame or the solar lords that kind of goes back to our last episode right and that these lords descended down and they created the Polarians. Um, this is kind of where uh, different, like these alien theory, you know, humanity was created by alien theory people get their ideas. But she's not saying they're aliens. These are spiritual evolved beings that descend to the earth and try to create the first human being. You know, there's a, a great movie that uh, I would recommend to all of our listeners. I'm, I, I think you've seen it, uh, Prometheus. You ever seen I've that? never seen that. Actually. Oh, you yeah. should watch it. Isn't that part of the aliens? It, it's trilogy? it's in the aliens universe. Um, but you should you really just watch like the first five minutes because it, it had so basically the idea is that uh, the universe is populated by these like ten foot tall like translucent alien creatures that dissolve themselves on a planet and then from their dissolved cells like life springs up. It's pretty close to Blavatsky's idea. Now, for them, it wasn't a material thing that like people in spaceships got dropped off and then exploded themselves in order to make life. Like, but it was this idea that there are beings at stages above us that descended into matter and gave of themselves to create the beginnings of human life. But it wasn't like it's not like this kind of very simple like Sunday school version of like you know Edenic creation where like the father God with a beard kind of like makes man and woman out of mud. Like it, it kind of, uh, it lays the foundation of what would become life. And so like, like you said too, like the Polarians aren't really even in the world, so to speak. They're kind of half in, half out. They're phasing in and out. They're not really in what we would call like material reality yet. And we're also talking about like what, like a billion years ago. Like this is a, a very, very long time ago. And correct me if I'm wrong, but each, does, does not each stage get shorter as they, like, it yes. takes less time yes. to complete? So the first root race of the first epoch was extremely long. And the next one slightly shorter. And uh, right now, ours is still millions of years from ending. Well, but it's interesting, too. Because, well, and so, <laughs> I know we should move on to the Hyperboreans, but I'm going to go on a little tangent here, too. There's this... Uh, you know, the, uh, several philosophers of the 20th century have pointed this idea out that, like, time seems to be accelerating, right? That, that the rate of change, as the, as the rate of technological change, for example, gets faster, our perception of the, of the, of the speed of which we live gets faster and faster. And that eventually, like, and that there are, there are smaller sub-cycles within each larger cycle in the theosophical view. So, like, right now we're in a cycle of acceleration, like things are changing at such a rate and and the way that we experience life is by marking different periods of change as those periods of change get shorter we seem like we're living faster well that's actually that's the trap of materialism and she talks about this um, in her in her writings so the faster our technology develops the faster we're involving ourselves in matter but and though we think that's a great thing that's actually a bad thing that's a sign that we're we haven't stopped and we're not moving upward. We're still descending into matter. So the, the, the deeper we get into science and to material technological advancements, those inventions are going to get quicker and quicker and quicker and quicker because they're leading us towards our own destruction. And it will, we will, you know, when we move from the fifth to the sixth root race, 
uh, we will essentially be on the point of self-destruction as an entire species. I was going to make a point about the Butlerian Jihad, but we should talk about the Hyperboreans instead. Um, no, no, no. I mean, the Polarians, I mean, there's a few more things that I think that are interesting about the Polarians, which is, so there's these single cell sort of amoebas floating around the oceans. And the the theory of the root race is also, it's a, it's it's kind of a history and theory of sex. All right. So there are no female cells or male cells. These are like androgynous. It's beyond androgynous. They're just, it's kind of a unitary system. It's kind of like, uh, what are those trees in, uh, in California that are all connected? The, the red... Um, the redwoods? The redwoods, right. So, you know, they've discovered that all the redwoods are connected underneath by a root mm -hmm. system, right? Mm -hmm. Well, these single cells were all sort of connected spiritually with one another so you, you we're talking about billions of these cells on the planet floating around in the oceans but they're essentially a web or one being you know they're all sort of connected so that's why they don't there was no individuality they don't have a mind they couldn't think they can't see they can't taste they i mean they can barely even perceive because like like again they're barely perceiving. they're phasing they're not even in the world yet that doesn't barely come, that barely. doesn't come until the next root yeah. race so like again is this a metaphor she's talking about? Yes, it's a metaphor, but I think it's also true because when we look at evolutionary theory, what do we see? That that life began as what? Single cell. Single cell organisms and in the oceans. Exactly. So she's she's correlating that to the beginning of the development of humanity. And the reason she says they're spiritual, they're not really self-aware, but they're spiritual in the sense that they are connected to the monad. Mm -hmm. They're more connected to the monad, more connected to the source than any other point. In this cycle, oh, unless until we get to the to the seventh. Now, I think you know after I think it's 150 million years, uh, we start to see the beginning of the Hyperboreans, and the Hyperboreans are mentioned by by a lot of different uh, groups, like the Greeks mentioned mm -hmm. the Hyperboreans, um, and it's in the north. So they they believe that uh, at this period in time, the North Pole is not like an Arctic region. Uh, but it is actually the most flourishing part of the planet. And the Hyperboreans um, had developed out of these single cells organisms into like 100-foot giants. Um, and I think that's described in the Bible, right? In Genesis? Uh, there, well, there is the, there's the Nephilim, which those are, the Nephilim are created by the, the interbreeding of human beings with the angels, uh, at least in the Bible. There is though there's a there's a more kind of like there's a more coherent version of that 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 aligns with the with Blavatsky's idea in the Norse Eddas, which the astute listener will notice the similarity be, between Edda and Veda. It's it's thought that um, you know some of the Proto-Indo-Europeans that uh, that originated the cultures that developed the Vedas were also the originators of the Eddas in the north. But so in the Norse Eddas, you've got Jotunheim, right? Which is the, it's a northern area of ice and frost, it's these ice and frost giants, basically. That and, and they were projecting back into this kind of ancestral memory of a time where somewhere in the north, which for them at the time of writing was a very cold and icy place. It may not have been before, but at their perception was that from the north were these gigantic creatures. They were somewhat human, but they were very kind of like, they're simplistic. They weren't like, they weren't 
conniving or cunning. They were kind of like these elemental creatures. They were giants, but they weren't really like, they weren't very sophisticated in the way that they lived. And even, you know, Hyperborea comes from the Greek idea of, I think it literally means beyond the north or northern mm-hmm. beyond or something like that. That they these these beings that lived at the farthest northern reaches of of the earth basically and and so in the eddas you have this idea of, of human beings interacting with with the giants of jotunheim and the the heroes of of their time would kind of go and fight these giants basically or they would go get magical items from the giants yes yeah, so this the second root race is essentially mindless like they're senseless um they don't have they're not self-conscious, you know, of, of themselves. Like, um, and this is what's hard for us to, dis- you know, when we're describing these type of beings. They're more like rocks at this point, right? Mm-hmm. They have, um, That's literally how they're depicted in the Eddas. Yeah. They're, they're made of stone. Yeah. And they're just these massive stone beings, you know, these giants. Um, you know what's a great depiction is the never-ending story. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. at the beginning, yeah, the that, rock crusher. Yeah, yeah. eating rocks, yeah. right? Um, which... The guy that wrote the Neverending Story was a theosophist, so mm. I think the Neverending Story depicts various elements of the root races. And as another side note, like you know, right now, where did that movie come out? Wakanda Forever, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Black Panther. That that whole story is inspired from the root races, right? The civilization that's separate from the rest of the world that has advanced technology from ancient times. Like it, people do not realize that people scoff at these stories and make fun of them. like it's it's so part of our modern consciousness in an indirect way that you would be amazed you know what the other one is uh, you know totally random aquaman perfectly oh, yeah. perfectly depicts yeah. the progression of the of the root races actually frankly like the all the marvel heroes the dc heroes they're these heroes are adepts essentially they're mm. modern and in my per, in my personal perspective pretty imperfect uh, copies of the adepts or these trans Himalayan uh, brothers yeah. that uh, Blavatsky found, but that's people don't realize. Again, all these modern stories—they're coming from the 19th century. So, from this kind of mineralized consciousness in the um, in the hyper in the hyperboreans, like you said, we have the the beginning of individuation in this root race. But then we move into the Lemurian root race, and this is—correct me if I'm wrong—but this is like the beginning of bodies right and 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 the origination of of kind of like the very beginnings of what would become our sense organs like eyes and and ears and noses and things yeah so we have the at the beginning of the lemurian race there are there's no two sexes there's no male and female they're androgynous beings um but by the end of the lemurian race and the beginning of the atlantean period uh the sexed body had developed so there was males and females and they started engaging in sex now, but it was innocent. So they're, they're, you know, it's depicted as that they were having sex all the time. Like they were essentially having orgies, but because they, they hadn't developed, um, their senses to the level that we have today. Like there's, it's, there's no indulgence. Like it's, it's an, ex, it's kind of like a child experimenting. And the, so they're experimenting with these new bodies they had, um, and towards the end of that root race is when they start to develop uh, more of the consciousness that we know in which they start to realize that there is a difference between um, what is right and wrong. 
uh, good and evil, mm-hmm. and that you know uh, too much of their exploration of the material world will lead them further away from their past, back you know back to the monad, back to God, right? And um, it becomes that dangerous period, right? That's the, that's when Adam and Eve are cast out of Eden, right? Mm-hmm. Because uh, for the first three races, mankind is innocent. They they don't know what they're they don't know what they're doing. They're not even really conscious of themselves. But now they've developed this sense of right and wrong, right? They've eaten from the the tree of of good and evil. They've they've eaten that piece of fruit, and now they have to start making hard decisions. And so this is where we transition from the Lemurian into the Atlantean race. And so the Atlantean race is the fourth root race. So it's the midpoint of this whole series, right? And so I find it interesting that it's at the center point that basically man makes his choice and is expelled from the garden. He, he basically falls from his state of, of innocence. And so in the Bible, it said that at this point, you know, Adam and Eve are cursed to basically Adam to work the land and Eve to experience pain and childbirth and that they, they basically have to experience matter. In, in my mind, that's, that's what that passage is trying to tell us that it's like, okay, you've made your choice here at the midpoint. Now you have to walk the rest of this journey home alone and, and deal with all the consequences in between. And so you have the, you have the first developments of civilization, of writing, of, like, uh, of the discovery of violence. Like before this, like human beings were not violent towards one another, right? So there's you, no war. There's, there's no the, conflict. There's nothing like that. Like what, but this, with the Atlanteans, you, you have the first instances of technology and of violence. And so there's this kind of like this idea in the story of the Atlanteans that the ultimate, the, the deluge that brought down Atlantis was self-inflicted that basically it was the hubris of the Atlantean race and their infatuation with their own technology and civilizational systems and their disregard for the for the warnings of the spirit that basically brought catastrophe down on their own heads yeah because with the the, with the Lemurians they don't have two eyes at the beginning mm-hmm. they have one eye that you know what we call the pineal gland was a spiritual eye they had this sort of innate sense of what they had to do and what how they interacted with everybody was an internal sense mm-hmm. um and they're sometimes depicted as uh, the lemurians like a like a cyclops with one eye that's where that 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 symbolism comes from but with the atlanteans that spiritual eye that central eye in the forehead right the third eye uh, moves into the head becomes what we call the pineal gland today and we develop two eyes because we have moved from a sort of omnijective universe to to a binary. Mm-hmm. Everything is mm-hmm. binary. We yeah. have, there's male and female. There's right and wrong. And therefore, we have two eyes. And the third eye is now hidden inside the middle of our brain. And one of the ideas is that in the future, we have to bring the third back back the eye back out through our forehead, keeping our two physical eyes so that we have three eyes. Yes. And that's the goal because once we get to the seventh root race, it's not that we're going to get rid of our bodies. The idea is that we're going to have perfected bodies, mm-hmm. but a pure spiritual understanding. So that's why the descent happens. So that, you know, from the first root race, it's just pure spirit, right? And then it descends into matter. Because we learn to have bodies, but on the us end, we don't get rid of the bodies. We perfect the body and reintroduce pure spirit. Yeah, we never go back. You know, there's this uh, conception in uh, in 
Tibetan Buddhism too, when it comes to reincarnation, like once your soul has reached the point of evolution where it can take on human bodies, it doesn't go backwards. It doesn't regress into lower forms of life. Like you don't go from a human to an animal or a plant or a mineral. You like you, once you're in human, you have to go all the way through human and, and get into whatever the next thing is. And so the Atlantean race too is, is where we have the, the, the development of the white and the black lodge. So like what we think of as the ancient mysteries really does originate in the fourth root race. It's, it's the first time that we have schools of wisdom, right? Like before that, we just like when we were um, uh, Lemurians, there was no need for it. Like you said, we had this kind of internal connection where everybody kind of just knew what you know, what God wanted it, it them was, to it do. It was a spiritual like, instinct. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, their, their spiritual intuition was the guiding force of their life. So in the Atlantean epoch, we have the externalization of all of this. This is like, this is the point at which writing and symbolism and architecture and all of these kind of like external manifestations of what was before internally known become, basically come into the world. But they have a, they still had a, a strong spiritual connection. Mm -hmm. And, and what happened here was is that some some of these forces, some of these people, right, these Atlanteans were like, man, I love matter. I don't want to go back. I don't mm -hmm. ever want to let go of this this feelings of, you know, just indulging in food sensation. and sex yeah. and sensation. And so that they formed the Dark Lodge. Um, and here's where George Lucas steals from theosophy because the Sith are essentially the Dugpas. They're the Black Lodge. Mm -hmm. They're materialists. They can't conceive of a spiritual perfection, and therefore they don't want to let go. They don't want to die because this world is all we have, and you have to conquer. You have to have power. You need to feel, and nobody should put any limitations on you. And the Jedi are essentially the White Lodge, uh, which is the idea of like, no, we will live after death. We will return to the Father, and we have to do that by negating materiality. So the other interesting evolution of the fourth root race is in its language. And, and this has been going on since the third root race. So the third root race, the Lemurians, they have this kind of like monosyllabic, like uh, intoned grunting that kind of like that. That's how they communicate concepts. Because, again, these are, you know, that's not, you know, I'm not crapping on them when I say that. It's just that they, they have a much more developed telepathic sense. They, they don't need to verbally communicate with one another. But the Atlanteans are severed from that connection. They, they, that uh, internal intuitional telepathic sense has faded away by the time the Atlanteans uh, emerge. And so they, they, they're the first uh, human beings to, de to develop linguistic systems. And uh, they use what's called, and this is a very difficult word to pronounce, but agglutinative language. So it, 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 it's actually kind of how the word sounds, but like entire sentences would be one word glued together yeah they they all kind of like they mush like seven or eight or ten words into one kind of like sound and then that is then interpreted so at this point too is like i think the extrapolation from that is that this is the first race of human beings that have symbolic representations of the truth so in the, the Lemurians, they're all connected to the same truth, right? They, they're, they're tapped in to the wisdom of God, right? The Atlanteans are the first ones that have to kind of express that for themselves. So what I think is really interesting here and what kind of leads to this division between good and evil among human beings is that you have the introduction of lying. 
of manipulating truth. And so you've got, so these people that become involved in matter, they start manipulating reality to reflect their desires as opposed to what actually is. So you have this, this first division between truth and falsehood. And I think that's what informs the foundation of these first schools of wisdom. You've got right and left-hand paths that are based on this idea of discovering and expressing truth and expressing whatever you want or your will on the left-hand path. So let me add another layer to that. So when we're looking at the root races, like the first root race didn't think. The second race didn't really think. The third root race started to think in a very like simplistic way. But it wasn't until the fourth root race or the Atlanteans that, um, that they were aware of themselves. And as such, here comes the confusion. Am I God? Or are we all God, right? Mm-hmm. So this this you know self-effacing thought that the Atlanteans were having, they started to assume their individuality in such a way that they thought they were God. There was a confusion there, mm-hmm. and therefore all this sort of left-hand path, sort of indulging in materiality, uh, is a reflection of their of this ability to think. Now, now everybody must be thinking, well, isn't that a good thing? Well, it is a good thing because. This is a, all of this is not bad or good when you look at a 30,000 foot like kind of view. Like humanity had to learn to think for itself. But the problem is when you start on a new sort of quest, a new evolutionary trail, path, you're going to have to learn how to cope with these things. So right now we're coping with our own thoughts. Like we have bad thoughts, good thoughts. We don't know how to control ourselves. We're like adolescents in, in, in a sense with our thoughts. And so the idea is in the sixth and seventh root race, we will have learned to control our thoughts. Well, it's like when toddlers throw tantrums, right? They, they, it's their first like grappling with the idea that they are separate from their parents and that they could have like, oh, you know, great that like separate uh, wants or desires from their parents. They, they all of a sudden, they want something other than what their parents wants. And, and they kind of just freak out and flip out, right? And they cause a scene because like they're developing thought they're not there yet like and it's it's not like obviously like we don't tolerate tra- uh, tantrums in adults but it's something that it's a phase that all children pass through because like that's just that's what happens when you develop the ability to think for yourself so it's the same with the atlanteans they they're kind of like they're the first ones to like reach out and grapple with matter and they 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 discover they can do all these cool things but that that also like can then be like they're children with with power tools, right? Like they're they're the first ones to kind of like experience what it is to be individuated material beings that can interact with the world, and so some chaos comes out of that. Mm-hmm. And and but in the midst of this is still the truth held on from the first root race. This this direct. Uh, link back to the monad, this intuition, this, this spiritual instinct, if we want to call it that. And this is the birth of the mysteries, right? So Atlantis falls, right? And it falls because of its of its own design, like the, 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 the Black Lodge and the White Lodge fight, um, and they destroy themselves. Like where we are today as humanity, we could kill ourselves with nuclear weapons, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we could destroy the environment to the point that we can't sustain ourselves on this planet. That's what happened back in the Atlantean period. They had these superior... Um, abilities. They still had magical powers, right? Um, It hadn't faded yet. And so they destroyed themselves. And so what we call the mystery schools 
is what survived from the fall of Atlantis. Mm -hmm. So when we look at the Egyptian mysteries, the Greek mysteries, the Chinese mysteries, the the Hindu mysteries, etc., etc., these are all what's left over from that time where there was truth. And that's why it's so important that we don't give up on these, these mystery rites because they still have the breadcrumbs of what was the perennial truth, the universal religion, before the Atlanteans became so involved in matter that they destroyed themselves. Well, and, and two, as, as part of that tradition, there is this idea, you'll find this in every religion, and it's certainly present in, the, in theosophy, that throughout the ages there have been either highly evolved human beings— think like Enoch, right, who's translated out of existence at the end of his life, um, who had a a very strong connection with the divine, but also angels that appear to men at various times and tell them of things to come, that, that basically God, like a parent, is kind of shepherding us through this experience. Like, we have to learn these lessons for ourselves. But occasionally, helping hands can be given. So, for example, in the in the Old Testament, there's the uh, the story of Noah and the flood, right? So Noah is visited by an angel in his dreams, and, and is shown this you know this prophetic warning of, of what is to come. That he has he has been chosen as an emissary, essentially, that, to be shown like you're at the end of a cycle, and if you don't want all of this to be washed away, then you need to do something. And so he and and actually like. You know, it's it's my opinion that this story is talking about the end of the Atlantean age, of the Atlantean epoch that was destroyed 100%. by a flood, right? And you find this story literally in every religious group and every story on every continent that there was uh, either a person or a group of people that were forewarned by a divine entity of a coming flood and that they were to prepare some remnant of civilization to carry it into the next age. And I, I think this happens at every turning of the age, that the, that some uh, group is essentially prepared to take um, whatever achievements of that age have been gained into the next age so that humanity doesn't start from zero every time. Because again, God as a loving parent wants us to grow and not you know perish on the earth. So here we are in the fifth root race. And, and by the way, we didn't say this at the beginning because it can get complicated, but there each root race has seven sub races. So the reason we're, we call ourselves the Aryans is not that the whole root race is Aryan, is that that's, I believe, the sixth sub-race of the fifth root race. But we don't want to complicate, you know, by getting <laughs> into this because uh, people like Rudolf Steiner and Blavatsky and other people have, like, mapped out all the sub-races and, and who they, they were in history. Um, I don't take much of that into consideration because this is a better idea applied as sort of a theoretical uh, framework for evolution and mythology. But as such... We are, we're getting towards the sixth root race. And each, uh, like you're saying, this kind of cataclysm that happens uh, between root races, they can be seen as a trial of initiation, right? So each race, after having gone through a period of, of evolving, must be tried and proved. Mm-hmm. And that's where masonry comes in. So we're going to spend the, this, this latter part of the episode talking about what does it got to do with masonry, you know, other than that Annie Besant... Uh, Annie Besant believed, you know, that we're going to be building this six-root race. Well, um, as much as I believe that's true, we can see evidence of this in masonry. And I think there's a lot of little things that can be tied into this, but the the first that comes to mind is Jacob's Ladder, right? The, this ladder, which is presented in the first-degree tracing board, um, ascending from the altar up 
into the heavens to the star of initiation, which is a seven-pointed star, to me is a symbol of the seven root races. So there's supposed to be seven rungs on the ladder, and it ends at a seven-pointed star. So I believe the ladder represents the seven root races, and we're stepping up each rung, and when we get to the seventh rung, we will enter into the light of this of the star of initiation, which is interesting because there's a sun and there's a moon on the tracing board, but in the middle, this is other light, the seven-pointed star, and I think that is the star of initiation. That's when we have come to the end of this entire cycle, this mystery of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so like... Yeah, that seven-pointed star is, it's out. It's us merging with God, right? That that we have we we have created in ourselves each arm of that seven-pointed star, and so in Masonic symbolism, God is represented in His universe in a Masonic lodge with a six-pointed star, right? But the star of initiation is a seven-pointed star. Basically, us completing the seven like rounds of this process by by fulfilling the mission of each root race we actually evolve god too like god doesn't do this just for fun like this isn't just because he's bored in, a, in an empty cosmos of nothingness it's like he also has to move to the next stage that's why i think that in the blue lodge he's represented as a six-pointed star but once this process is fulfilled and our and we merge back into you know whence we came we have all together collectively added to God himself and that he has fulfilled his purpose and then we'll begin this process again until he becomes an eight-pointed star, a nine-pointed star, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's again, it's the cycle of time, right? But we're, we're, we're past the halfway point and as Masons, uh, I believe it's our job to create the new race. Now, the new race isn't black people or white people or yellow people or or this perception that we have of the race. It's everyone on the planet, regardless of your skin color or your eye color or your height or all these things. Like the physical vehicle is just an expression of the spiritual. And spiritually, we are developing as one humanity towards the sixth and seventh root races. And, and part of that, part of our evolution is to recognize the fact that we aren't separate because mm -hmm. materiality, the involvement of matter has made us to believe that everything that doesn't look like us is different. And so we start categorizing everything. That's that's Science does that. M materiality does that. We start creating names for everything, where we separate everything. That's part of the linguistic part of the evolution you were talking about. But at some point, we have to start putting it back together. We have to bind back all of this um, separation back to unity. And so masonry especially co-masonry allows us to do this. So this is one of the reasons why we call ourselves brothers and not brothers and sisters, because we are one humanity. Gender, the gender binary, right? Genderism is just another way of separating us. And we have to, we have to go back to God to go up to the sixth and seventh root races. We have to start uh, moving back to the path of androgyny. We have to move away from male and female, uh, from, you know, um, American and British, from tall and short, blonde hair and black hair, like all of these things are just, they're just material distinctions. Mm -hmm. Because if you remove all that, what's left? A human soul. So why do we call ourselves brother? Well, because we are all brothers of in humanity. And this is another reason why in co-masonry, we wear a uniform that is 
unisex, right? Because mm-hmm. we all dress the same. We call ourselves the same thing. These patterns that we do are to start developing the minds of co-Masons into the template of the six root race. We are, we are beginning this work now. All the other organizations on the planet are dividing us even further and further and further and further apart. You know, intersectionality, um, you know, all this, all these different groups now that are advocating for different rights for different peoples. That's not the right direction. It's, no. it's not wrong what they're doing because they're doing it for the right reason, but it's the wrong methodology. We need to stop... We need to stop looking at distinction. You know, it's very interesting that the, it, like it's a very symptomatic understanding of the problem. That like there's this idea that you know people have been treated differently throughout history, and that has to be redressed by continuing to treat people differently, without understanding that the fundamental root of the problem is that people have been treated differently. Now, obviously, there are differences between human beings, but this like this is the point that Masonry tries to make that behind all of that. These, these petty material forms is a religion which all men can agree upon which all men can agree, right? That there is a single truth through, pervading through all these systems and through all these forms from age to age, from race to race, from epoch to epoch that is ultimately our original home and source and, and the aspiration to which we should direct our progress. Now, my question to you, Brother Matthias, is then if, if this is the case, do you believe that in this root race or those to come do you think everybody has to be initiated no i don't think so i think um if you look at blavatsky's writings she basically states there's always a group of people that bring about the new age the about the new consciousness the movement between the sub races so masonry at least in Annie Passant, which was the successor to blavatsky she believed we're building the new race that's our job as masons um, not everyone needs to be Masons, but we are creating this consciousness that will then spread from our Masonic lodges into society and change the world. So we as Masons have to start thinking in a way that when I meet a person, I'm like, he's black, she's white, uh, she's annoying, he's great. Like every time we, we put these labels and these distinctions, all we're doing is separating. We must return to the unity. We have to start, you know, when you meet a person, you're like, this person is me and I am that person. Mm-hmm. The way we do it in Lodge. That's why in Lodge, we have such specific language. We have such specific ways that we interact that like when we're talking about the right worshipful master, that's not a person. That's an idea. Mm-hmm. The senior warden's an idea, right? That's that strength. And, and the junior warden is... Uh, beauty, right? So when we start seeing that people are representing different ideas and that, that these ideas are really inside of us, then we will transform the world. But where does it start? Does it start in our schools? No. Is it going to start with laws in the government? No. It, it starts with organizations that still practice the mysteries. And many of those that do practice the mysteries are falling away because they're subject to um, the modern... I don't know, this, this modern materiality that's just, again, just putting labels to everything so that, you know, you don't get called out. So there's an idea that, that I think encapsulates what you're talking about in the mystic charge of the first degree of the Dharma ritual. And it's this idea that as newly initiated Masons, you have been welcomed into the work of building universal religion. So it's been said forever, forever and repeated ad nauseum uh, that Masonry is not a religion. Right. We're not a religious organization. We're just, you know, a bunch of bros hanging out, making good men better. 
I, nothing could be further from the truth for me. When we talk about the idea of building universal religion, this, this is the same work that we've been talking about, this, this preservation of the progress of humanity from age to age. And this idea of like that you have to respond differently in different ages depending on the conditions of the evolution of the human race. And, and so like in between all these sub-races, right, each one of them is going to present its challenges. But always, universally, the work has been from age to age to build universal religion. It, that's the arc. It's not a big boat. Like that's, that's not what preserves humanity from age to age. It's the buttresses of universal religion, a, a place for the sheltering of mankind. It's not a physical thing. It's the temple made not of hands. This, this idea that is transmitted from generation to generation by initiates, that's why it's not, like, it's not for everybody. It doesn't have to be. You, you, like, the entire village didn't have to build the church. You know, you hired a guild of stonemasons and they built the church for you. And then everybody goes to church and they can build their community around that, right? It's the same with masons. We build the forms that other people inhabit throughout the ages. So Blavatsky does something very interesting in Isis Unveiled, which is a book she wrote before um, Secret Doctrine. And she, she spends the, sec in the second volume of Isis Unveiled, she talks a lot about masonry. But she, she makes... Um, she distinguishes between two forms of masonry, Western masonry and Eastern masonry. So Western masonry, she thinks, is this shallow, empty vessel, which essentially all the modern Grand Lodges that have no idea what they're doing, but they, that they come from a noble place. And that the Eastern Lodges are the schools of adept that she, adepts that she encounters in Tibet. And that they are the real masons because they're in secret building thought forms that will change the consciousness of humanity. And she believed that there would be a time that Western, um, Western masonry would kind of like be restored to the Eastern ways. And I think that comes true when Annie Besant creates co-masonry and revitalizes the ritual and brings about uh, an esoteric perspective and framework around the ritual and that we are living that legacy right now. Our job is to restore Western masonry to that of Eastern masonry. And we do that by realizing that our job isn't to go, you know, raise, you know, $300 for the local, you know, I don't know, blood bank or, you know, whatever these charities do. Like, again, materiality is not the solution. Making money and giving money out and doing charity is not going to solve our problems. We have to change the consciousness of mankind. And so these forms uh, that we're building in our lodges is the template for the future. And how do we do that? We have to change the way we think on a, on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. that, that is the, the work of the Mason is, is to make those, um, you know, to use the working tools to slowly chip away at one's personality in, in such that like you become fitted to the, to the, the pathway of evolution. So like... I think of it as a kind of like there's a force, a current that's always moving in this direction, right? This movement towards spiritual evolution and that it requires like, like it's leading through portals of a certain shape and you have to make yourself that shape in order to pass through. Or, or perhaps like um, you could think of it like a net or a strainer that uh, a massive amount of water is passing through, right? And it's trying to strain out all those things that are unsuitable for the next stage. Mm -hmm. Well, you have to shape yourself to pass through 
that net or that mesh. And so in masonry, I think what we're doing is shaping ourselves. Like we have this metaphor that of the uh, of the rough and perfect ashlars, right? That that we are um, a knobbly, out of shape stone that doesn't fit properly into the temple, and that by basically shaping ourselves, we can essentially pass through this veil into the next and, and continue to follow the river of evolution as it leads us back to our source. Well, I think that's why we are um, very specific who we allow in our lodges because that's that shifting process, right? We're, we're, we're trying to find gold amongst the rubble, right? Mm-hmm. You know, So not every person can be a mason because they're not ready to make these mental forms. And, you know, I'll add this, Brother Axel, that I think, and I'm going to be very specific here. Our job as Masons is to develop the sixth sense, which is telepathy. So I think the entire Masonic workings is to develop that sixth sense. You might ask why. Well, well, when you're sitting in Lodge and you can't have your cell phone, and if you're in a Lodge that you have cell phones, it's not a real Lodge, um, and you're sitting there and you're focusing and you're supposed to be, you know, intaking all the work that's going on, the ritual, you know, you're supposed to feel one with the master, one with the candidate. We're developing telepathy. We're, we're starting to anticipate what's going to happen next. Well, yeah, of course, because it's a, it's a formula. It's a, it's a ritual. We know what's going to happen next. But once you start going through that ritual over and over and over again, you start to anticipate in the outer world what's going to happen next. You start to be able to, you know what people are going to do. You're going to feel what they're doing. You're going to think what they're doing because we're trained and launched to do that in this repeated formula called the Masonic ceremony, right? And so by sitting there, being silent, being away from all distractions, from your cell phone, from your computer, from stupid conversations, from social media, from all those things, you're there in the silence of the universe. You're anticipating what's going to happen next. And eventually you take that that power of anticipation, that power of sensing what's going on into the outer world where you start sensing what people at work are doing or what your family's doing. I mean, I, I think anybody here that's been married for 20 years or more, you just start to know what the other person's doing. And I know all these scientific therapists, psychology people are going to tell us that, you know, it's just some kind of thing in our mind that we just we start to realize the patterns in other people. It is that, but it's more than that. I think we start to get in tune with the people around us. And when you get in tune with them, you know what they're going to do. And eventually, I think that's going to lead us to be ap- you know, able to actually pick up the, the, the thoughts of other people. You know, if, if thoughts are a real thing, and they have to be because they're coming out of the brain, why can't I perceive those somehow? So we haven't developed that sense yet, but we're going to do it by going through the ritual repeatedly. Yes, it's a, it's the it and it's the repetitions that do it because not only like not only do you become in tune with the people that are specifically around you, but like Masonic ritual is a microcosm of universal processes. The it, it the, every opening and closing of a lodge is the creation and destruction of a universe. So, if we are practicing in miniature, what happens to us outside of the lodge? Like you cannot help but notice patterns of life in the Masonic ritual. And it's, again, it's foreknowledge of all these things. So Masonry is actually like physical, uh, material telepathy in, 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 the, in like the 3D world. Because if we see what's going to happen before it happens by participating in a ritual that is based off of a cosmic principle that is always going to repeat, 
eventually, you know, if we, if we get it through our thick skulls, we, we actually see these patterns in miniature, then when they come to us in the outer world, we can see them before we, they happen. That is a form of precognition. That's telepathy. If you, can, if you understand what's going to happen before it happens, then you're, that is the development of the sense that you're talking about. Yeah, because if you look at like if we look at the the previous races, they 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 symbolize the evolution through the mineral, the vegetable, the animal, etc. But what makes a human different is is our mind, right? And the distinction here is that not all humans are fully human. Some are more animal than they are human. Some are more Atlantean than they are, you know, Aryan. And this idea here. Um, you can separate people very easily, right? So, you know, the ones that are just going through life, just, you know, uh, going to work, coming home, watching TV, drinking a beer, going to sleep, and just doing it over and over again, no ambition. They don't really care about religion. If they go to church, it's only because it's been, you know, they've been raised that way to do that. They're, they're not really thinking, right? Well, they're still animals because animals don't think. Animals operate on a level of instinct, right? They have an oversoul, right? They have one big soul. You know, all, all, all lions have one soul and all uh, gorillas have one soul. Uh, at least that's how Blavatsky perceived of it, right? Well, a real human being has uh, arrived at a level of individuation, but in order to do that, you have to separate yourself from the oversoul. You have to separate yourself from instinct, and you actually have to be thinking. So the Masonic Lodge takes away all the distractions so that all you can do is think, right? Because I don't think every human being is thinking all the time. I think we think that, but I'm not sure that's the reality. And I think they've done some studies. I think we were talking about this. You, you brought up an article uh, several weeks ago where, like, you know, they realized that people, some people only think when they're forced to think. They're not having this internal dialogue all the well, time. Well, it's, it's a shocking number, too. So the, the study that, I, that Brother Matisse is referring to shows that only about 30 to 40% of people have an inner monologue. So, like, only... only only about 30 to 40% of people have a voice in their head that they are like responding to with their thoughts. So when, when we have self-effacing thought, we think, why did I do that? Right. Or, um, for example, like, you know, what could I have done better in, in that situation? Only 30 to 40% of people have those thoughts. It's, and it, it, this is just because like we are at that stage of evolution where that, uh, level of development of consciousness has only permeated through to about 30 to 40 percent of people that are currently incarnated ideally if the if the work and the evolution continues that number will rise the the uh, the stream of thinking will be instilled in more and more souls as they spiritually evolve to become capable of that and as that number increases then our ability to perceive other people's thoughts and emotions will increase but that's how we get peace on Earth. You know, the idea of a utopia is, is only conceivable when we have a level of empathy where we know the plight of our brethren around the world. We don't do that now. We, we can intellectualize like, oh, there's starving people in Africa or there's an earthquake in India or, or you know, something bad has happened to some group of people. But it's a thought and that thought doesn't make it real. We don't feel it. So telepathy is really a level of a higher level of empathy where when we can feel all the people around us, then how can we get mad at them? How can we blame them? Because what they feel, we will feel. And then we will be feeling what they feel. And 
we will become more as one. This is why we put up with so much nonsense from our family members, because as much as they can make us angry, we're so close to them, we empathize with everything they're going through. But we don't empathize with someone on the other side of the planet. As much as we want to pretend to, that's a lie that we tell ourselves. So telepathy will lead to a high level of empathy. And when we, we can feel everybody's emotions, well, then how can we strike them down? How can we hurt them? Because then we'll be hurting ourselves. We will feel the pain and we won't want to feel that pain, right? No, and that is the, the work of masonry. When we say that we believe in the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, it's that expansion of the human family that we're talking about. But again, this has to be done as people are ready for it. We can't just go out and declare that this is the case. I mean, we can we can say that in, in Masonic ritual and, and in our philosophy and our writings. We can assert that this is true. But until... But until humanity knows it to be true, then our work will still be incomplete. The Masonic Lodge does one critical function. It strips us of our individuality. When you go into a Masonic Lodge, you're no longer a man. You're no longer Axel. You're no longer a manager. You're no longer a father. All those labels, all those titles that you've accumulated through your life, they disappear. You're just a brother, right? And... When we strip ourselves of our individuality, those things that we think make up our being, then we are open to the universe. But when we think, oh, well, I'm a father and I, you know, I'm, a, I'm a computer programmer and I'm this and I'm that, those things, um, I think, they confuse us. Because when we die, all those things disappear, right? What's left? It's just our soul journeying onward, right? And so the Lodge returns us to the womb of the universe every time we go strips us of all these outer layers of our material being and allows us to connect with one another at a higher level. Thank you for listening to Legends of the Craft. This podcast is purely the opinion of brothers Matthias Comcier and Axel Suvari and does not represent the official views of Universal Comasonry. Universal Comasonry is a Masonic order founded on the principles of liberty, equality, and fraternity that admits men and women without distinction of race, religion, or creed. For more information, please visit universalfreemasonry.org.